In Luke chapter 22, Jesus celebrates the Passover meal, the traditional Jewish Passover meal with his disciples. That's not all that he's doing in Luke 22. He's also establishing a new practice for his followers, for the church, which we call communion, the Lord's Supper, a time where we break the bread as a picture of Christ's broken body and partake of the cup as a picture of Jesus' shed blood. And like I said, because today's passage focuses on communion, we're going to move right from the sermon into a time of worshiping Christ by remembering his death, thanking him, loving him, giving ourselves to him afresh in commitment. I'm praying that this passage tonight is going to give us even more clarity on the beauty of Jesus' love in dying for us. We'll see that even more clearly so that our worship will be even more full of love and adoration and awesome rejoicing in who he is. I I read a, a a story this last week of a church that celebrated the Lord's Supper in England in the 19th century. And the way that the pastor described what happened, I thought, I've got to read this to, to us this afternoon. This is what I'm praying God might do in our hearts as we celebrate communion together. Here's what he said. There was one special time of communion when, he said, many were melted into love as they partook of the bread and the cup. That's what God can do. He can just melt our hearts into loving Jesus Christ, worshiping him. So many were melted into love as they partook. Yes, the whole church seemed the gate of heaven. It felt to them like they were right at the entrance of heaven. God was that near. Christ was that close. Oh Lord, make us feel like we're right at the gate of heaven. And at the close of the day, the old minister said, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, quoting Paul's words from 2 Corinthians. Oh Lord, would you pour out your grace upon us as we open up your word now and as we worship you with communion. So let's turn to Luke 22, verses 14 to 23, and look at what we see and learn about Jesus and what communion, the Last Supper, is all about. Starting in verse 14, Luke 22, verse 14, I'll read. And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, my disciples, with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it, and the implication is I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, again, the implication is again, until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, he's betrayed, he's arrested, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. What I want to do this afternoon is raise five crucial questions that arise from this passage to prepare our hearts for celebrating communion. And the first question is a question that can confuse people when they read this passage. And the question is, why does Luke mention two cups? When we celebrate communion, we start with the bread, which is a picture of Jesus' broken body, and then we celebrate the cup, which is a picture of Jesus' shed blood. Bread and one cup. So why, in this passage, does Jesus talk about two cups? Look at verse 17. Here's the first one he mentions. Verse 17, he took a cup. When he'd given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. There's the first cup. And then the second is mentioned in verse 20, three verses later. It says, after the bread, verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So why, in this passage, two cups? And the answer is, as most of you probably already know, at this time, Jesus is celebrating the traditional Jewish Passover meal with his disciples. And the traditional Jewish Passover meal had more than one cup, where they would pass the cup around and celebrate at a couple different times in that traditional Jewish Passover meal. That's why there's more than one cup. Now we mentioned last week, let me just remind you, that this Passover meal is looking back. God's people every year would look back. It's 1,500 years before Jesus came, when God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt by pouring out plagues upon Egypt. And the last one was where God's wrath came upon Egypt and the firstborn in every house was killed. And in response to that, Pharaoh finally said, you may go, go, leave. But remember, God had said, any house that has taken a spotless lamb and killed it, and applied its blood to the doorposts. Any house that does that, my wrath will pass over that house. Will not land on that house and take the life of the firstborn. It will pass over that house. And that is one of many beautiful pictures in the Old Testament pointing ahead to what Jesus Christ would do, the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God. Because when you put your trust in Him, all of your sins, past, present, future, were put upon Jesus on the cross and punished there so that God's wrath will always pass over you, never land on you. So it's a beautiful picture looking ahead to what Jesus would do. But again, understand now, that Passover night, Jesus is there with his disciples. He's doing two things. One, celebrating the traditional Jewish Passover, just like they always did with all the different cups and everything else but he also was making some changes and turning it into what we call communion. 
the Lord's Supper, which doesn't focus so much on Israel's deliverance from slavery in the past, but it looks ahead to what Jesus would do the next day on the cross. And so now we remember Jesus' death. So Jesus is celebrating the traditional Passover meal and making some changes, focusing on the bread, which is a picture of his broken body, and on the cup, which is a picture of his shed blood. So he's giving us, followers of Jesus, communion, the Lord's Supper, which followers of Jesus for centuries from every nation, tongue, and tribe have celebrated. And this is a time where we come together and he meets us in a powerful way as we set our hearts upon him and remember him. That's why there's two cups. Second question. I love this. How is this Passover meal fulfilled in the kingdom of God? That's what Jesus says in verses 15 and 16 and then verse 18. Start with 15 and 16. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So, men, disciples, I have longed for this night. I've longed to earnest, I mean, I've earnestly desired to celebrate this Passover with you this night. Why? Verse 16. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he says something very similar in verse 18. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. So the reason Jesus has been longing for this final Passover meal, he's saying, men, disciples, I've been anticipating this time where we can together think about the fact that we will celebrate this again in the new heavens and the new earth, and we'll be celebrating the fulfillment of everything that I'm going to do on the cross tomorrow. We'll be back together again at the end of history, new heavens and new earth, celebrating the fulfillment. Jesus is anticipating this final meal. Look at Luke 13, 29, where he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And look at what he says. He says, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. That's the celebration feast where we are celebrating the fact that everything Jesus purchased for us on the cross has now been fulfilled. We will all have new resurrection bodies. We will all be completely free from sin. Glory! Won't that day be amazing? No more pride. Woo! It's going to be awesome. Freed from sin. And we will be there celebrating together in the very presence of Jesus Christ. This celebration meal, it's all been fulfilled. And so as we come together this afternoon and every time to celebrate the Lord's Supper, part of this is, friends, we are going to do this again in the new heavens and the new earth when we're celebrating the fulfillment of everything that Jesus accomplished on the cross. That day is coming. That day is coming. What we're doing this afternoon is just a foretaste of that day. So we can look ahead to that. Third question, what is the focus of communion? I think probably most of you know this, but let's linger on this important point. Verse 19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, 
which is given for you. So this bread is a picture of my broken body, which I'm going to be giving for you tomorrow on the cross. Do this, take this bread in remembrance of me. That's the focus of communion. We are remembering Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross. So as we come together to take communion, we want to just think about as we're partaking of the bread, partaking of the cup, we want to remember Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. This is what our Savior did. He loved us when we did not deserve any of his love, quite the contrary. But he loved us in spite of our sin. We'll remember how much he suffered on the cross. Just think about that and ponder that. How he took our sins upon himself and he was punished. He was punished for all of our sins. Amazing. God in the flesh being punished for our sins. Unbelievable. And yet gloriously believable because of how glorious our God is. And we can remember that. Remember we saw this last week. At any time through Jesus' sufferings, he said, I could call upon the Father, and he would send 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels he could send, just like that, and I'd be delivered. But he chose at every moment, no, I'm going to continue. I'm going to continue. I'm going to continue until he said, it is finished because the debt had all been paid. Our our salvation was secured forever. That's what he's done. So the focus is remembering. Now, I would encourage you, ask God to help you. Lord, help me to remember. Help me to remember. Holy Spirit, help me to see this and to feel this more deeply. He will help you. And, And when your mind wanders, you get distracted. Oh, Lord, forgive me. I'm back. Help me. He he loves to help us, so he will come and help us. We're going hard after him. He will come and help us, and we want to remember Jesus' death on the cross. And as we do that, oh, he will meet us, fill us, satisfy us, convict us, strengthen us, fill us with hope. He'll come and do that. We remember Jesus. Fourth question. What is this new covenant which Jesus' blood purchased for us? Look at verse 20 again. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What is that? New covenants. Now, a covenant is, is an agreement, a commitment, an agreement to fulfill certain promises. That's what a covenant is. So, so what's this new covenant? One of the clearest explanations in the Bible is in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. I want us to go through this verse by verse, because this is the clearest explanation of what the new covenant is. So Jeremiah said 600 years before Jesus, the prophet Jeremiah, verse 31, here's what he said. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So there's the words, new covenant right there. So when the disciples heard Jesus talk about this new covenant in his blood, they'd be thinking, that's what Jeremiah talked about. They'd be thinking about this passage. Keep reading, verse 32. So God's going to make a new covenant, verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So the old covenant was made by God. He made this agreement with them when he brought them out of Egypt at Mount Sinai around Exodus chapter 34. You can read that passage for yourself. So that's when the old covenant was established, right at that point. And the new covenant will not be like the old covenant. So what was the old covenant like? In the old covenant, God gave Israel his law. And his law is wonderful. Like David said, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. David loved God's law. God's law was wonderful because it told us that we are saved by faith alone in what God would do through the Messiah, not by our works, saved by faith alone. God's law was wonderful. It, it taught us in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God is slow to anger and abounding, overflowing in steadfast love and mercy. He delights in mercy, not in judgment. That's our God. The law pointed to animal sacrifices to help us understand how God would forgive our sins through what the Messiah would do, the Lamb of, of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the law promised them the joy of God's presence. So God gave them his precious, beautiful law. But the problem was their hearts were as sinful as our hearts used to be. All of us have hearts that don't want to trust God, that are full of pride, that want to rebel against God, that want to run away from God and turn from God. That's the heart condition that all of us have had in the past. And if God had left us to ourselves, we would still be running from him. None of us wanted to turn to him. And so Israel, because of those hearts, rejected God's law. Never turned to God in repentance and faith. Broke God's covenants. That's the old covenant. But now what's the new covenant? What's the new covenant? Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Can I remember? Old covenant, God gave them his law. Stone tablets, there they were, Exodus chapter 34. In the new covenant, it's different. God puts his law within us, puts it in our hearts, writes it on our hearts. He writes his law, he writes his word, he writes his gospel on our hearts. And what that language means is that God changes our hearts 
Remember Ezekiel 36. I love this passage. God takes out our hearts of stone, and he gives us hearts of flesh. God's the heart surgeon, heart transplant surgery. Hearts of stone, out. Hearts of flesh, in. Changed hearts. That's what God does with the new covenant. Takes out our hearts of stone. So he changes our hearts with the result that we choose to trust him and his mercy and his Savior, Jesus. We choose to repent because he's changed our hearts. That's what God does. We don't become sinless with the new covenant, but our hearts are changed so that we are convicted for our sin. We turn back in faith and repentance. We're back trusting him again. Forgive me, I'm back trusting you. We're not sinless, but we're changed. That's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, that does not mean that no one in the Old Testament time period was saved. Understand, the Old Testament time period is not the same thing as the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is part of what God was doing in the Old Testament time period. It's not all that God was doing. Because we know that there were people whose hearts God had transformed, taken out the heart of stone, given them a heart of flesh, put his laws within them, written his laws on their hearts. People like Abraham, right? People like Moses, Sarah, Ruth, the whole nation of Nineveh. Remember after Jonah's preaching, they all repented. And many, many, many more. So during the Old Testament time period, God was bringing some new covenant blessings to many people who were alive at that time. But in his justice, he did allow many others to continue in their unbelief, to continue in their rebellion, to continue in their pride and their hostility toward him to their destruction. That was part of his justice. But he did bring new covenant blessings upon people. Abraham, David, Naomi. We just keep going through the list. Many, many in the people of Israel. In the last line of verse 33. Beautiful. I will be their God. They shall be my people. The new covenant, he changes our hearts, takes out the hearts of stone, gives hearts of flesh. He writes his word, his law, his gospel on our hearts, changes our hearts. So we turn, we trust him, we repent. And as a result, we are saved. We are completely forgiven. And he says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Which means that forever, God is going to be our merciful, saving, gracious father and friend, like we sang about earlier. And forever, we're going to be his people, trusting, loving, relying, worshiping. Forever. Listen, just let this sink in. Praise God for the new covenant. Forever, God is going to love us. Forever, God's going to keep us from stumbling. Forever, God's going to keep us on the road to heaven. Forever, God's going to strengthen us through our trials, comfort us in our heartbreaks, encourage us as we fight the fight of faith. Forever, God is going to be our God, our Father, our friend, our Savior. It is secured through Jesus' death forever. That's what the new covenant is. 
Then verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Understand, not everyone who is part of the old covenant people of Israel, not all of them were saved. I mean, you can read the Old Testament, and it's, it's shocking how many of them continued in their idolatry and their unbelief. So not all of the, the old covenant people of Israel were saved. God had given them his law as, as part of the old covenant, but not all of them were, were saved. God, God allowed many of them to continue in their sin, in their pride, in their unbelief. And this is part of God's justice. He's completely just to do this, but he allowed them to continue toward destruction. But, as we read this in verse 34, everyone who is part of the new covenant, everyone who's part of this new covenant that God makes, is saved. Because to be part of the new covenant means you receive God's heart-changing work. He reaches down and he changes our rebellious hearts. He changes our unbelieving hearts. He changes our proud hearts. Transforms us. We were dead in sin. He makes us alive. That's what he does. And so we trust and we repent and we are saved and we are forgiven. So everyone in the new covenant community, because they've received the new covenant, heart-changing work that God talks about here, is saved. Not all those in the old covenant are saved. Some did receive the new covenant blessing, but all those in the new covenant community are saved. So that's Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. God is promising a new covenant, not just where he gives his word, his law, his gospel to, to, to sinful people who will never turn to him. And to understand, if God didn't change our hearts, we'd still all be running away from him, and we, we would continue to be running away from him. That's why this new covenant is so precious, because he writes his law on our hearts. He puts his law within us. He takes out the hearts of stone, gives us hearts of flesh, changes our hearts so we turn to him, trust him, trust Christ, and are forgiven and saved. That's Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Now, crucial next question. What does the new covenant have to do with Jesus' death? What's the connection between Jesus' death and the new covenant? And the answer is everything. It has everything to do with Jesus' death. Look at what Jesus says again in Luke 22, verse 20. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is saying that when he dies for someone, he purchases the new covenant blessings for them. When Jesus dies for someone, he purchases the new covenant blessings for them. His death pays for their sins, and so he purchases God's heart-changing work for them. Faith-giving work, repentance-producing work. He purchases that for them on the cross at the cost of his blood. That's what Jesus does. 
new heart, faith, repentance, purchased through the cross. So think about what this means. Oh, I'm just praying that God will grip us with this. If you have faith in Jesus Christ in your heart tonight, it's because Jesus died for you and bought that faith for you at the price of his blood, his shed blood. That's why you have faith in Jesus Christ tonight. If you have in your heart love for God's word, desire to obey God's word, it's because Jesus died for you and bought that love for God's word, that desire to obey God's word. He bought that for you at the price of his blood. That's why you have that in your heart. If you have a heart that has, been, has repented over sin this past week, where did that repentant heart come from? It's because Jesus died on the cross, paid for your sins, bought repentance for you, and gave you repentance when he saved you, changed your heart, took out your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh. God gives us faith as a blood-bought gift through Christ. God gives us repentance as blood-bought gift through the death of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we're passive. Some people hear this and they go, okay, so I just, just wait. I'm waiting for God to give me faith. I'm waiting. Is God going to give me faith? That's not how it works. Jesus doesn't tell people, wait to receive faith. He says, repent and believe. We are called to choose to repent, to choose to believe, to fight the fight of faith. We choose to repent and believe, and when we do, we know that the reason we did was because Jesus purchased that repentance and that faith for us on the cross. Think of what this means. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just pay for sins, and then wait to see who would turn to him. And understand, our hearts were all so hostile toward God and so uninterested in God and so proud that nobody would have turned to him. We would have all still been running away from him. It's not what Jesus does. And Jesus does, in justice, allow many to continue on that on that road, but in astonishing love and costly, costly mercy. Jesus, book of Revelation says, he died on the cross and purchased for a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe. He purchased faith and repentance, new hearts for a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's what Jesus does. And then because he does that, Holy Spirit comes upon you at some point in your life. You, you remember that day, changes your heart, gives you faith, gives you repentance. New covenant blessings. Now think about what this means. What this means is that we can't take credit for any part of our salvation. The reason you have faith is not because you came up with that on your own. You never would have. But Jesus, at great cost to himself, the sufferings of the cross, purchased that faith for you. He purchases new covenant blessings through his blood, like he says in verse 20. Jesus, at the cost of his blood, purchased 
everything that you need for your salvation. Your faith, your repentance, your perseverance, comfort when you go through trials, strength to battle temptation, everything you need, everything you need for your salvation was bought through his shed blood on the cross. And he gives it to you as a free gift. Everything. Jesus accomplishes all your salvation. So he gets all the glory. Oh, church, let, let, this, let this just settle on you. This highlights the mercy of Jesus Christ. We didn't bring anything of our salvation to the table. We were running from the table. And in great mercy, at great cost to himself, he purchased heart change, faith, and repentance. And that's why you're trusting Christ right now. All the praise, all the glory, all the honor for our salvation goes to him and his grace. We deserve nothing. He's given us everything at the price of the cross. This is our Savior. One last question in this passage. Jesus ends kind of a strange way. Why does Jesus close by saying someone will betray him? Look at verses 21 through 23. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Imagine that you were Judas, thinking no one knew. Jesus says, brothers, the hand of the one who's going to betray me is, is right here with us at this table. Wow. Verse 22, for the Son of Man goes, he's going to be betrayed, going to be arrested, as it has been determined by God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, before creation, all planned out. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. Why does Jesus end on this note? I think it's that, well, look at the emphasis in verse 21. The hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table. The betrayer is right here amongst us. I think Jesus' point is to warn the disciples and to warn us, by implication, that no one is saved by associating with Jesus, associating with Jesus' disciples. No one is saved by, being, by sitting at that table with them. No one is saved by partaking of communion. No one is saved by going to church. There's one way that we're saved. By trusting Jesus Christ. Are you trusting Jesus Christ? As your Savior, first of all. I realize I'm a sinner. I'm in desperate need of forgiveness and salvation. And I can't get that myself. I can't do anything to save myself I trust Jesus, his death on the cross. He's my Savior. Are you trusting Jesus as your Savior? Are you trusting Jesus tonight as your Lord? Look at how glorious he is. Look at how powerful, how 
pure, loving, good. I want to completely surrender my life to him. I can trust him for everything. Are you trusting him as your Lord? And are you trusting him as your treasure? The joy of knowing Christ is infinitely more satisfying than anything else there is, period. Are you trusting him as your treasure? There's only one way that we're saved is by faith, trusting him as our Savior, our Lord, and our treasure. Are you trusting Jesus Christ tonight? Are you trusting him? If not, let me encourage you, look at who Jesus is. Look at his compassion and his costly mercy. Look at him, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, dying on the cross to save a vast multitude that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe, buying new covenant blessings for this massive number of people that he's going to save at great cost to himself. Look at his love, look at his mercy, look at his compassion, and trust him. Trust him right now. You need a Savior. He is the Lord. He's your only all-satisfying treasure Turn to him and trust him now. Choose to trust Jesus now. And when you do, you'll know he bought that trust for me. He bought that heart for me. He bought that faith for me at the price of his blood shed on the cross. You'll be saved. You'll be forgiven. And if you are trusting Christ tonight, I know many of you are, Fall at Jesus' feet and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Nothing of my salvation is from me. I deserve nothing of it. You've given everything to me. Fall at his feet and say, thank you, my Savior, my Lord, my Jesus. Let's pray together. Help us see, Father, through what your Son said here, how the new covenant was purchased through the cross. And that the faith that we have, the repentance that's in our hearts, blood-bought gifts, purchased at such a price, such a cost, your suffering, Lord Jesus. I pray for any here who are not trusting you, Lord. Right now, would you bring your power upon them and change their hearts? Write your law upon their hearts. Write your gospel upon their hearts. Take out hearts of stone right now and, and give hearts of flesh right now. Let faith just be poured out upon this room, I pray. Repentance poured out upon this room right now, Lord, as only you can do. And Lord, now I pray that you'd meet us as we come together to remember your death. Meet us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.